What is the, the furthest distance that you've ever traveled? Israel? Southeast Asia. <laughs> Jerry said coast to coast on a, on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> Quite a journey. Some of you have been to, you know, other continents. Uh, you know, maybe some of you, I don't know, Tom's not here. You know, Africa, South America, Asia, Europe, uh, faraway places, Australia. I'm not sure many have been to Antarctica. No disrespect, but probably not made it to that continent. Uh, Maybe you haven't traveled to another continent. Uh, Maybe you've made it to another state. Uh, Maybe you're still young and the furthest distance you've traveled is across town. I don't know. Uh, Whatever the case and whatever the distance, travel comes with excitement. Whether we're heading to the airport or climbing into the van, we're sure to learn or to see something new. Even if our travel is utilitarian, that is, maybe it's work or family-related, travel grows our experiences. As I see it, this is one of the major benefits of travel. You may have heard of the Grand Teton Mountain Range. Maybe you've heard of that. But seeing those peaks, those three monstrous peaks rise from the ground is an altogether different experience. Maybe you've heard about large trees, but standing at the base of General Sherman is certainly a, a transform, transforming kind of experience. Maybe you've read about uh, certain paintings or sculptures, and, and then you go to see those things in, a, in an exhibit, and it's breathtaking to, to actually take in that, that thing that you've learned about or read or studied. It moves you in some ways, maybe you've, you've had an experience like that. Of course, it's possible to be moved in another way. Uh, while I was living, I was thinking about, you know, while I lived in L.A. for three or four years there, I had the opportunity to go to what's called Skid Row. Maybe you've heard about Skid Row. Uh, it's this neighborhood in East L.A. that is uh, full of homeless people. The, line, the streets are lined with homeless people. Of course, nowadays, especially in California, we kind of see Skid Rows all over the place unfortunately, uh, but this is a neighborhood where the whole streets are lined with homeless people, and uh, the area is marked by vagrancy and dilapidated buildings and drug dens. Of course, as I said, L.A. doesn't have a corner on Skid Row, and Skid Rows are in other major cities, and in fact, our city has an area such as that. Uh, Ours is no different. There are places in our city where you could go see downtrodden and forgotten people, and I, I would suspect that although Skid Row is not on your bucket list, uh, going there would move you in some ways. Traveling there would have an impact on you. Whether the Grand Tetons or Skid Row, there's no doubt a voyage can grow our experiences, but, or however, what specific effect does it have on us? Well, the effect of travel is a kind of revolution. It's a, it's a revolution of thinking. Through the senses of sight, sound, and taste, we take in new experiences, and our thinking about the world changes. You might say we progress. Like the classic liberal arts that gave us a, a little bit of a slice of grammar, arithmetic, and logic, 
uh, rhetoric or the modern STEM fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, seeing and hearing new places results in a revolution of thinking. If the effect of travel is revolution, well, what's the purpose of travel? Well, you might say it's transformation. As citizens, we're encouraged to travel to our nation's capital in the hopes that we might be transformed into respectable citizens. You might know that in the Old Testament, the Jews were required to return to Jerusalem three times a year. The three festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Booths, in which they were, all men were required to go to see Jerusalem and to go to the temple. We're given a picture of how these religious pilgrimage, pilgrimages might have transformed the worshiper in the book of Psalms. You might know there's a section of the Psalms there from Psalms 120 to Psalms 134 where the subscript on the Psalms says, a song of ascents, right, to go up. And these songs were sung as the worshipers had this religious pilgrimage where they went to Jerusalem. They went up to the temple. The psalmist expresses that he's tired of this hostile world and he longs for the fellowship of worship. As he makes his journey towards Jerusalem, he lifts, lifts up his eyes to the hills and he asks, where does my help come from? Of course, he responds, my help comes from the Lord. It's a kind of journey, transform, transformative journey that he's on. Outside of Scripture... You probably know John Bunyan gave us Pilgrim's Pro Progress. It's a wonderful story. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory, which simply means that there's two meanings to it. On one level, the story is about a man named Christian. He leaves the city of destruction, and he's on his way to the celestial city. On, the, on his way, he meets various roadblocks and creatures. He falls into a swamp or a bog, I think it's called, uh, the, the Slough of Despond, he meets worldly wise man along the way. He finds shelter in Goodwill's house. In the end, Christian and his friend Hopeful arrive at the celestial city. Of course, before they do, there's a river there. There's no bridge, and so Christian finds himself in the water there. And Hopeful reminds him of Christ's love, and he's able to make his way across into the celestial city where both Christian and Hopeful are welcomed in. The two pilgrims are welcomed into the city. That's the first level. Of course, on another level, or a deeper level, you might say, Pilgrim's Progress is about the journey of the average Christian. It's our story through Bunyan's eyes. It's a story about forsaking sin and striving for righteousness. It's a story about the journey of faith. Like Bunyan's character, Christian, you and I are on a journey but the journey is not simply about arriving at our destination. In the way that taking in the sights and sounds and tastes of this world expand our mind and lead to a transformation of thinking, in the way that a religious pilgrimage might lead to a transformation of worship, you and I are on a journey that will, as I'm going to suggest, transform our faith. This morning I want to make this point with a story. The characters in the story are some people from a place called Galilee, an official and his son, and some servants of that official. And of course, Jesus is in our story. The main characters of the story are the official 
and Jesus. And I'd like to suggest that this story, in this story, Jesus will take us on a journey that will grow our faith. And so if you would please stand and we'll read this story together. It comes to us from John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Uh, Excuse me. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, "'Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe.'" The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he had began, be, began to get better. And he said to them, said to him, excuse me, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. As I've said, Jesus will take us on a journey to grow our faith, and that's what we'll be after this morning. I'll give you the outline up up front for this passage. The outline this morning contains three steps or three sections. In verses 43 through 45, we'll see how the plans of faith are set. In verses 46 through 50, we'll see how the travel of faith is made. And in verses 51 through 54, we'll arrive at the destination of faith. And so we'll set the plans, we'll travel faith, and we'll arrive at our destination. Let us see first how the plans of faith are set. Verses 43 through 45. You might recall from last week and from verse 40 that Jesus stayed with the Samaritans for two days. This is where our story begins today. Verse 43, after two days he departed departed for Galilee. Jesus left Samaria after two days and traveled to Galilee. Now, Galilee is, is a region north of Samaria. Uh, it's that kind of that area that sits between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, we read about these important cities of Gennesaret and Bethsaida and Capernaum. All of those cities are on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And right between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee is the city of Cana, where Jesus performed his first and his second miracle, the one that we read about just now, and we're studying this morning. It's not entirely clear what John is after in verse 44, and we're we're somewhat surprised by it. We read this parenthetical statement, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. We read similar statements in some of the other uh, narratives about Jesus or the other gospels, uh, biographies of Jesus. However, in those accounts, 
it says, it mentions the city of Nazareth, where Jesus was from. Here, we don't read about Nazareth. It just says that he's, he had no honor in his hometown, or maybe even a better translation would be home country. So, this raises a question. What does John mean by him not being received in his own home country if, in fact, the Galileans welcomed him and Nazareth is in Galilee? So how do we make sense of that? Well, I, I think we can make sense of that if we kind of step back a little bit and see the forest from the trees. Recall a study of the last two weeks. We read about the story of the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan people. Uh, an entire town of Samaritans received Jesus. Of course, these were Gentile people. They declared Jesus to be the Savior of of the world. Well, up to this point, and among his people, save his disciples, Jesus only encountered skepticism. The Jews challenged him in the temple, you remember. His disciples struggled to understand him, and the Jews that did believe proved to be spurious converts. Unless we know the end of Nicodemus' story, chapter 3, leaves his opinion open. We're not sure what he believes about Jesus. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Jesus departs from Judea, apparently to avoid a potential division among his people. All of this suggests that in verse 44, John is reiterating that generally speaking, the Jews did not receive Jesus. He did not have a great welcome among his people. And so, up to this point, as a people group, only the Samaritans had actually received Jesus. Well, what about this Galilean welcome that he receives? How are we to understand that? Well, notice that John includes the reason behind this welcome. He says in verse 45 there, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This welcoming comes with a caveat, a kind of caution, you might say. Positively, the Galileans have not rejected Jesus. In fact, no doubt many of them pronounced wonder and amazement of him. On the negative side, the Galileans had not welcomed him as Messiah, but as a mere miracle worker. Although a a welcoming crash rings out, the rhythm under the text is really found in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. You remember this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." And the reason why Jesus didn't entrust himself to them has something to do with signs, something to do with miracles. The signs or the miracles in the Gospel of John form a kind of irony. As I mentioned in other messages, the signs of Jesus are a major theme of the fourth Gospel. John is explicit In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he gives us the purpose statement for the gospel, and that purpose statement relates to those signs. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. 
So the very purpose of, of John writing is to explain the signs or miracles of Jesus so that we would see those signs and wonders and that we would repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we, like the Samaritans, would declare Jesus as the Savior of the world. That's why John is writing. That's why he's telling us about these miraculous signs. Yet, there's an irony, and we've already read it. The irony is found in this. The miracles of Jesus or signs are designed to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah, yet Jesus will challenge our desire for miracles. There's a, a paradox found in a sign's ability, in the sign's ability to convince us that Jesus is the Savior of the world and the sign's ability to distract us, which will come out in this text. It's like walking in your house and seeing your kids laying around watching TV. You've been gone all day. Maybe you've been gone all week and you walk in. They don't even acknowledge you're there. The sign is distracting them from their provider. In the same way, signs distract us from seeing our provider. The miracles of Jesus are presented to us as the reason for belief as the purpose statement of the book says, yet Jesus desires to pull us away from that reason, to pull us away towards something better. And it's here that we discover the journey of faith. Although the journey may have begun with signs and wonders, the journey of faith challenges us to walk away from the miraculous and into the mystery of faith. Thus, what I see in the Galilean welcome, verse 45, is maybe at best an open door. They welcomed him, but the jury is very much still out. And as the outline this morning suggests, the plans of faith are set. In verses 46 through 50, we're going to see how these plans unfold as the travel of faith is made. Here we are introduced to the official, one of the main characters of this story, some translations call him a royal official, others a nobleman. The word is used to describe a man, uh, describe the man, it does denote royalty, not that he was from, not that he had royal blood, but that he, he was a servant of a royal man. He, he served royalty. He was most likely an official in the service of King Herod. He was probably a wealthy man. He had servants, as we know. Although John doesn't tell us anything about the man's ethnicity, most, most commentators believe that this man was a Jewish man, although we don't know for sure. And it's this official son who's fallen ill. That's the conflict in the story. Apparently, this illness involves some kind of fever and was, as verse 47 says, it was terminal. Right? He says, for he was at the point of death. So, we have a high-ranking official in Capernaum with some knowledge of Jesus' miraculous powers who hears that Jesus has come to Cana and then he comes to Cana to beg Jesus to heal his sick son, his dying son, I should say. And I say beg him because that's really the sense of, of this word asked him in verse 47. The verb tense conveys the idea of a persistent request. And so the man has an urgent need. He pressed his plea. The son was very close to death, and he needed Jesus to intervene. 
Finally, Jesus speaks in verse 48. So Jesus says to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I think that's a rebuke from Jesus. An admonition, a rebuke. And these words are addressed to both the Galileans and to the official. The you there is plural. I think the NIV translation actually does a really good job with this. They capture it this way. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You people. Not just the noblemen, the Galileans, and dare I say, us. As I've already said, the welcome from the Galileans was flawed. Their focus on the signs Their focus was on the signs that Jesus performed, and this official was no different. It seemed this man majored on the miraculous. And these words from Jesus are striking. Again, there's a deep irony here that's in the text. John is writing about miraculous signs of Jesus in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yet, Jesus is offering a rebuke to those with a sign-dependent faith. It's true. Miracles have an apologetic value. Absolutely. Miracles give us a reason to believe. For sure. Yet miracles, as we'll see even later in the Gospel of John, cannot compel genuine faith. Signs should not be spurned, yet raw interest in miracles is hazardous. This is the course that Jesus means to set with the official, and it's one that he wishes to set with you and me this morning. I don't know if you've seen the Disney movie Onward. In that movie, the the main character, the main characters need to to cross a a bottomless pit. Of course, there's got to be a bottomless pit in a Disney movie, right? So there's a cavern there, and they need to cross a bottomless pit. And so... Ian has to cast this spell to get across the bridge. He has to create a trust bridge. Of course, maybe you know the trust bridge is invisible. All trust bridges are invisible. Maybe you're more familiar with the Indiana Jones scene and, you know, the the leap of faith. Maybe you're more familiar with that scene. It's basically the same scene, except redone in a Disney way. Of course, Ian is unwilling to step out. And so his brother Barley helps him out. He ties a rope around his waist. And that rope around his waist gives him the confidence to take those first steps and cross that trust bridge. Of course, what Ian and Barley don't realize is that the rope, of course, is going to fall from his waist at some point. He's, the rope is not going to make him travel with him all the way across. As Ian does make his way across that trust bridge, his confidence grows. Yet eventually, the rope falls from his waist, and although he doesn't realize it, Ian is walking over that bottomless pit on that invisible bridge with no strings attached. It's an act of faith. He continues to make his way across without the rope, and with each step, his faith grows, and he begins to dance around, and he eventually makes it, of course, not without some excitement, but he eventually makes it across the bridge and gets to the other side. Well, signs and wonders are like the rope that barley ties around Ian's waist. They allow us to make our first steps of faith, but as we make our way onto the trust bridge, God desires that the rope fall 
from our waist. I know this may not be a popular perspective, but God wants to wean us off signs and wonders. And I believe that's what Jesus is attempting to do with the official. He's taking him on a journey that will leave him less dependent on sight. Now, I do want to be clear. I'm not saying that that the Bible or that Jesus or that God is calling us to a blind faith. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that you and I can't argue for the existence of God. We can absolutely do that. There are good reasons to believe that the Bible is true and that God exists. There are good, uh, and it's a good thing to do that. First um, Peter three fifteen says, "Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you." We should be able to provide a defense of the faith. I'm not, I'm not saying that God is calling us to a blind faith, and I'm, I'm not also saying that you can't pray for God to tangibly intercede. You can't pray for good health. Absolutely, you can pray for those things. In fact, we see that in the Bible. The, the clearest example of that I can find is in 3 John 1, 2, where John writes to a man named Gaius, and he writes this, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Pretty simple. He's praying that things would go well and that he would have good health. We can certainly pray for those things. The Bible confirms in many places that God is concerned with our health. The Old Testament dietary laws are an example of that. Maybe you remember the story of Elijah. There was a drought in Israel, and God put Elijah next to a brook where there was water, and he had, he had birds, ravens, come and, and bring him bread and, and meat. Certainly God is concerned with meeting our physical needs. I'm not saying that God is calling us to a blind faith, and I'm not call, saying that God is, is not concerned with meeting our tangible needs. What I am saying is that faith is the priority. Faith is the priority. And Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. It's believing in something that's invisible. Otherwise, it's not faith at all. Which, of course, is the challenge. Paul said it very simply. We walk by faith, not by sight. The words are simple enough. The principle behind them, not so simple. Especially when your son is dying. Verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This man totally disregards Jesus' words. He looks right over them. Whatever the truth is about Jesus, about religion, about God, all that is secondary. In this moment, my son is at the point of death. I need your help. I know that you speak about eternal life, Jesus, but right now, the the tangible things of this world are right in front of me, and I need your help. How does Jesus sort this out? Well, only the, only the way Jesus can. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Jesus meets the man right where he's at. 
What Jesus intends to teach this man about the priority of faith, whatever he intends to teach him about that, he's not going to do it on the back of his son. And so, Jesus uses sight to teach faith. Instead of holding the man's misunderstanding against him, he uses the man's misunderstanding to make his point. As the words of Jesus fall, go, your son will live, the man has a choice to make. What's he going to do? Where will he place his faith? Even better, when? When he sees with his eyes that his son is in fact healed? Or is he going to believe right now? The, the official has nothing but the bare words of Jesus. Your son will live, four words. Is this man like the Galileans? Is he like the Jews in the temple? What sign do you show us for doing these things? It's, it's not like Jesus said, you know, so that you will believe that I healed your son, I'm going to pick a miracle. Turn these rocks into bread. Or like he told the man that couldn't walk, so you know that your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. He doesn't perform a miracle to prove something else. He just uses his words. Your son will live. So the man has a choice to make. He's on a journey of faith. As the rope begins to fall from his waist, John tells us in verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man steps forward in faith. He believes the words of Jesus. If this is a test, I don't know, maybe. If it is a test, the man rises to the challenge. He meets the demands of faith. He believes what Jesus says, and so he continues his journey. Now there is one final step in this journey. Verses 50, 51 through 54, finally we see the destination of faith is reached. In these verses, the tension of the story is finally resolved. As the man journeys back to Capernaum, his servants rush to meet him and share this wonderful news. The son has recovered. He's alive. The fever has left. Of course, the father questions these servants. What time did he recover? Sounds a bit pedantic or precise. It's like, who cares? He's alive. Of course, we understand that behind this question lies a detail about the man's faith. There's something else going on here. And as we know, it's that very hour that Jesus spoke those words, which would, would have been one o'clock. That, that, that very moment that Jesus spoke those words, your son will live, the boy's health was restored. He was healed. Take note, it's not that Jesus somehow knew that at that moment his fever would break. It wasn't like telepathy or ESPN, ESP, not ESPN, <laughs> ESP, clairvoyance, I don't know, whatever it was. Uh, it was a miracle. It wasn't sixth sense. These four words from Jesus break through with power. Your son will live. 
At that very moment, at the very moment that Jesus spoke these words, the waves of healing crashed upon the boy. His fever subsided. His headache stopped pounding. His appetite returned. You can imagine him jumping out of bed and everyone, whoa, 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 easy, easy. What else would, would, would it look like for these servants to put their sandals on and run out to meet the master? That this boy had an amazing recovery. Now, we know that behind the news of the boy's recovery, as the servants surrounded this man and together they shared in the joy of the son's recovery, something significant is happening in the man's heart. Before this moment, the the official had only words to lean his belief against. Faith had been kindled in the man's heart. The man believed without visible or tangible evidence. As the man journeyed to Cana, originally, where he started, you'd imagine his heart was filled with anxiety. He had heard that Jesus could do miraculous things. His faith was similar to the Galileans. Jesus was a a talented wonder worker. Maybe he could heal my son. As the man laid his trouble upon Jesus, Jesus compels him to move in a new direction. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Which is to say, oh, that you would think less of signs and more of me. Yet Jesus, the master teacher, gives the man a sign. And the sign moves the man's faith. He begins to step forward. He believes. The irony is that the things that distract us from faith are the very things God uses to compel us toward faith. In the very moment that Jesus cautions the man about signs, he performs the sign. And the effect comes full circle as the man reaches his destination. The, tr- the, the sign transformed his faith into a greater faith. And so the effects of the man's faith, they, they overflow over unto his family. And so we read in verse 53, he himself believed and all his household, which is a pattern we see in the early church and, and throughout the New Testament. And when man believes, all of his household believes. The man instantly became a leader of the faith among his own household. So in this story, we see how the plans of faith are set, how the travel of faith is made, and how the destination of faith is finally reached. Before we close, however, we have to ask the question, where are we at in this journey? Where are you at on this journey? Do you have a sign-dependent faith? Are you like the Galileans? Have you welcomed Jesus? Meaning, you've invited him in, but your faith only goes as far as signs and wonders. This kind of faith is very strong when things are going well. I see in my own heart a Galilean faith too often. I sense it every time I'm angry when things don't go my way. I sense it when when doubts break in and I question my faith. When I struggle to have faith, I want a sign. 
Maybe you're like the official in verse 50. You're on the journey. You've taken some steps forward, but you're, you're still checking to see if, if that safety rope is still attached. Do you have a traveler faith? I suspect most of us are here. I think we see an expression of this kind of faith from David in Psalm 13. Listen to these words from David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give me a sign. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Like David, we've seen God work. We've seen the miraculous. We've seen signs and wonders. Yet we ask, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? We know in the mind that God has not promised to right all our problems, yet we are crying out, come down before my child dies. It's not that having a traveler's faith is wrong. It's not that such faith will lead us to ruin. It will not. As Jesus said, Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed... You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It's not so much about the measure of faith as it is about where, we, where you've put your faith. Listen carefully. The power of faith is found in that which it is directed. The power of faith is found in that which it is directed. And if our faith is found in signs and wonders then our journey will only go so far. It will only go as far as those signs and wonders. Yet, or but, if our faith is found in Jesus, then our faith will take us to places we can't imagine. Dare I say, as Jesus did, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, it is possible you've progressed as far as the official. You have a, a verse 53 kind of faith. Do you have a destination faith? If so, praise God. Praise God that you have a destination faith. This is the kind of faith that finds a firm foundation in Christ. It doesn't require signs and wonders. Although, I can't speak personally about this kind of faith because I haven't arrived I've seen it. I've seen it in people, young people, old people. I've seen it in some of you. You remember Job? He had a destination faith when he lost his family and all of his possessions, his business, everything in one day. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a man that arrived. How about Esther? A young woman with a world against her, 
stood for her people and declared, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. How about those three men who stood before King Nebuchadnezzar and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. The be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if the sign and the wonder doesn't come, if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's real. What about the Apostle Paul while laying in a Roman prison? Wrote to Timothy, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. I suppose the final question is, how do we come upon such a faith? How do we arrive at our destination? I wish I had the answer. I'm not sure there's a secret sauce. I don't know. But I do believe that faith grows by exercise. It's a bit of a truism in this world. You practice something, you exercise, you work it out, you get better at it. I believe that's true of faith, too. Alexander McLaren writes, the way to increase faith is to exercise faith. And the true parent of perfect faith is the experience of the blessings that come from the crudest, rudest, narrowest, blindest, feeblest faith that man can exercise. Exercise. Trust him as you can. Do not be afraid of inadequate conceptions or of feeble grasp. Trust him as you can, and he will give you so much more than you expected that you will trust him more. I believe that's a good word. I really like that one sentence there. Do not be afraid of inadequate conceptions or of feeble grasp. In other words, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith, whether you're taking the first steps of your journey or you've almost made it home, wherever you are on that journey, trust him today, even in this moment, and you'll find life and an ever-growing faith. We're going to sing, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er, how I've trusted him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more.